it was shocking to me that there was this entire group of people who were supposed to be the future leaders of our country and they were totally disinterested in any kind of real political conversation. They hated the concept of free speech. They tried relentlessly to silence the college Republicans, to silence me. I was reported to the administration. I had to file police reports because I was getting online threats constantly. They said they were going to come track me down at graduation and throw hands or something. I don't remember exactly (laughs) what the words were. Um, I mean, it it was there was this predisposition to violence, especially that was really concerning. Um, And these people graduated and went on to work for major consulting firms. Some of them joined the mainstream media. Um, Some of them went up to New York City and started working in finance or, you know, hedge funds. I mean, really highfalutin jobs given to people who were not only stupid and unimpressive, but also really, really toxic in terms of how they viewed the world. Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and I'm joined by Nick Solheim, the COO of American Moment. Looking ridiculous as always. Uh, We're always glad to have you guys back for yet another episode. I can't believe we're up to 102 pieces of content here on Moment of Truth, including some fairly newsmaking stuff over the last few weeks. There was a lot of coverage of the JD episode, as you can imagine. This week, we had on uh, an old, old friend. Um, she's not old herself. Um, but she is an old friend. <laughs> and, she's going to love that. Yeah. Uh, uh, someone who uh, was very much involved in American Moments Genesis. Uh, a bunch of our buddies and I would do these Zoom calls in early COVID back when you weren't allowed to go outside, um, or at least they weren't allowed to go outside because they lived in D.C. I lived in Austin at the time, and Amber was one of these people, um, as were, um, who else have we had on the show that was in this group? Um, Julio, Rosas, Greg Price. Um, we haven't had Greg on the show. We haven't had Greg on the show. We should do that. Yeah. Um, uh, and and many others, and and now, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm all grown up. Amber was also my, like, boss when I worked at the Daily Caller uh, many, many moons ago, uh, and uh, she actually took me to the White House, and I, I remembered this as she was telling the story about how the White House Press Association actually works on the show today so uh, a fun episode with a lot of fun memories um, you may see the title of Amber's book and think oh god this is boomer bait I promise you it's actually not I would not have had her on if this was pure boomer bait uh, the book is called the snowflakes revolt how woke millennials hijack the American media but look you've got to sell books and so they have to be titled like that but what Amber is actually talking about in this book and and in a lot of her commentary is something that is of personal interest to mine which is the generational change that's happening in the personnel that staff every institution in American life and the consequences that's going to have for human civilization. (laughs) You know, we're basically screwed Um, because you have these like over-medicated morons who don't know anything and who like hate civilization, hate white people, hate straight people, and hate uh, the United States who are now running all of our major elite institutions. And they're going to drive the economy into the ground. They're going to make all of our cultural outputs utterly disgusting. And in general, they're going to make America a more miserable, pla- miserable place to live. <laughs> You're like blackfilling <laughs> everybody today. We have a fantastic conversation with Amber about uh, the media, about what Georgetown University is actually like, about the White House Press Association and the Correspondence Dinner, and in general, just 
have a, a, a fun conversation about how all of that actually works. Some interesting original reporting that she's done on the Politico style guide and what that means for the future of journalism. I highly recommend that you guys listen all the way to the end. Um, and uh, for her formal bio, uh, she is a professional journalist and political commentator and the current Washington editor for The Spectator. She's the host of the Unfit to Print podcast and a senior Blankley fellow with the Steamboat Institute. Prior to joining The Spectator, Athey was a White House correspondent for The Daily Caller. She previously covered media and breaking news for The Daily Caller and was an investigative a reporter for the Leadership Institute's campus reform. Her work has been cited by, among other leading networks and outlets, Fox News, The Washington Post, NBC News, Vanity Fair, Politico, The Hill, USA Today, and The Daily Mail. We'll go now to Amber Athey. Amber, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, it feels like it's been a long time coming. You were uh, one of the people that we were talking to, feels like almost every single day when we were thinking up American Moment. And so uh, you have written a book uh, and uh, good on you. I'm fairly certain I would never be able to, at least according to Nick. Um, yeah. You would never <laughs> be able to. Um, and it talks about a topic that can sound like boomer bait, but I think is is actually like the story of American life now and in the coming years, which is there's going to be a generational change in the guard in every single institution, and it's not going to be for the better. <laughs> um, it's it's actually going to be pretty freaking disastrous. But before we get to that, I want to hear a little bit about your background so people know where you're coming from, sort of from the belly of the beast on the woke revolution inside our institutions. Tell us, tell us the tale. How did you become a lying fake news journalist? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, certainly. So um, I talk about this in the beginning of the book as well, sort of my origin story, because I think it's important to understanding why I have so much skepticism towards my own generation and why I'm sort of a class trader and uh, among other journalists. Um, so I grew up in Western Maryland. My dad was a union plumber. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. Um, she worked until I was born. I have an older brother. And then she decided to stay at home. So we were very much a blue-collar, sort of middle to maybe lower middle-class family for most of my childhood. And definitely had a lot of struggles associated with that. I mean, my family has had um, issues with alcoholism, um, prescription drug problems, health issues, I mean, physical health ailments, especially related to my dad's work. He had a lot of um, major illnesses when I was growing up that really tightened the pocketbooks for us and made things kind of a struggle. But my parents were really good about kind of shielding us from that as much as possible and just always taught us that life is not fair <laughs> and you have to be willing to work hard and, and deal with struggles all the time and, and take challenges and use them to make yourself better and stronger. And so that was the mindset that I had um, when I was heading off to college. I went to Georgetown University, which felt like the biggest deal in the world at the time. You know, <laughs> like I'm this little union plumber kid going off to this prestigious school in Washington, D.C., the nation's capital. And I quickly realized that it was kind of a joke, honestly, like the whole elite university system was j not real. Um, I, I went to school with some of the dumbest people I've ever met in my life. <laughs> like, truly, I mean, just as an example, I had this roommate who was uh, considered a legacy. There was a scholarship at Georgetown named after her grandmother. Mm. And some of the questions that she would ask me were things like, how are square burgers made? <laughs> um, I I accidentally swallowed a cough drop before it fully dissolved. Do you think I need to go to the student health center? 
I mean, <laughs> really just smooth brain nonsense. Uh, so, so I'm going through school and, and I was pretty conservative at that time just b- because of my upbringing. Um, I don't know that my parents were overtly political with us, but it was more of a values type thing. So I'm a very outspoken person. Um, I started getting into trouble pretty quickly on campus just by saying pretty anodyne Republican-leaning things. I was a Romney voter. It was 2012. Wow, based. Yeah, Yeah, super cool. I was so hardcore, super populist, obviously not. Um, But, I mean, it was like, it was Obama versus Romney. That was the thing. And my freshman year, I was the only person on my floor with a Romney sign on my door. And that led to all of this trouble with my peers. They would come by, they would rip my sign up, they would write nasty things on my whiteboard and knock on my door at all hours of the night, basically just trying to, I guess, scare me to get me to be quiet. And uh, that just made me actually angrier. So I fought back harder. But um, I mean, throughout the four years that I was there, it was shocking to me that there was this entire group of people who were supposed to be the future leaders of our country and they were totally disinterested in any kind of real political conversation. They hated the concept of free speech. They tried relentlessly to silence the college Republicans, to silence me. I was reported to the administration. I had to file police reports because I was getting online threats constantly. They w- said they were going to come track me down at graduation and throw hands or something. I don't remember exactly <laughs> what the words were. Um I mean, it, it was there was this predisposition to violence, especially that was really concerning. Um, and these people graduated and went on to work for major consulting firms. Some of them joined the mainstream media. Um, some of them went up to New York City and started working in finance or, you know, hedge funds. I mean, really highfalutin jobs given to people who were not only stupid and unimpressive, but also really, really toxic in terms of how they viewed the world. Um, So I ended up uh, working for campus reform after graduation. I kind of got in touch with them because of my work on campus trying to push conservative voices forward and the backlash that I received for that. Um, Covered liberal bias on campus at campus reform for about 10 months and then moved over to the Daily Caller and started covering national politics. I was writing about the media specifically for about two years And then had the awesome opportunity to cover the White House during the Trump administration from 2019 to 2020, um, and then went over to The Spectator to be their Washington editor, which is uh, where I've been since February of 2020. Gotcha. Well, Georgetown is interesting because I think more self-consciously than almost any other school in the country, the people who graduate from there expect to be part of the Washington establishment. Can Can you talk a little bit about what that actually looks like at the undergrad and grad school level like how do these students talk about their own future and their (laughs) expectations for what they'll be doing with the rest of their life everybody at georgetown thinks they're going to be the president someday it's a stereotype but it's true i mean from freshman year you would meet people who would treat every personal relationship like it was a stepping stone to the white house Um, I mean, I would go on dates sometimes and afterwards the guy would be like, I'm so sorry, but I'm just really too busy to to date seriously right now. And I look at them and I'd be like, what are you what are you doing? That's like has you so busy that you can't go out on a date once a week. And it was 
because they were trying to pad their resume with all of these clubs they were joining and all these leadership positions they wanted to grab for the sake of just building the credentials that they would one day work in politics. Um, the School of Foreign Service is especially interesting. Um, we have a senator right now, John Ossoff, who graduated from there. And the SFS kids um, were either future president or they wanted to be diplomats one day. That yeah. was the big thing for the SFS kids. No, I think it's genuinely a disaster that one of them actually became a senator because uh, it's When like, I nah. heard that he went there, I was like, this all makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> everything. yeah the yeah. SFS kids have a bit of a reputation at Georgetown for... Um, for being just very big like ladder climbers mm -hmm. and really insufferable um, because they're so full of themselves and they think they're better than all the other schools in Georgetown, like the college and the business school. Um, but there's also infrastructure at Georgetown that helps make these things a reality. So there's a, um, a center for politics. Uh, I think it's called GU, just GU Politics. And when I was there, it was run by Mo Alethi, who mm -hmm. was... Um, a former DNC comms guy, I believe. Uh, and he, they made it sound like they really wanted to work with the college Republicans and help bring conservatives on campus. But you could tell that they were just doing it because they had to. And as soon as I graduated, like any relationship I had with geopolitics was completely cut off. Um, but this was how they brought in people for the libs to network with. Um, one year they had a fellow class that included Brianna Keelar, for example. So you had all the people who wanted to work in journalism going in and going to Brianna Keelar's uh, fellow group. And they had Brian Stelter a couple years back come in and host these discussions and classes. So they have, I think, 10 fellows every semester that come in and I assume probably help these kids find their path to into politics or journalism or public policy or whatever thing they're interested in. So, I mean, that's just one example. But the government department, which I was a part of more broadly, definitely makes efforts to make sure that the Georgetown kids are staying in D.C. and are going on the Hill or, or pretty much anywhere else. Yeah. So you mentioned, you know, that a lot of them ended up <clears throat> sticking around in D.C. or going up to New York to work at these hedge funds. What is it, you know, after they've had their first, second job uh, post-graduation, what is it starting to look like now that these people are getting jobs with actual, you know, influence? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the whole, like, big theme of the book is that we said repeatedly, and I, by we, I mean conservative pundits who are not very good prognosticators. Um, they They claimed all over Fox News and wherever that the snowflake generation, the woke millennials who were throwing Molotov cocktails when Ben Shapiro came to campus, were going to get their first paycheck, realize how much how many taxes were being taken out by the federal government, and they would moderate. And maybe they would even become conservatives, yeah. right? I mean, the idea on its face is just ridiculous, but um, they really were pushing this. And then on the left, you had a group of people who claimed that nothing was wrong on campus at all. Um, so nothing needed to change. These kids didn't need to change because they were just fighting for what was right or whatever. So these uh, students that I graduated with go on to professional workplaces. In a few years, they get maybe a promotion or two and they get a little bit of responsibility. Some of them don't. A lot of them are still really like at the lower tier of, mm -hmm. of their um, professional life. But 
they have basically used the same tactics that they did on campus, meaning mob politics, to affect change in their companies. Um, so in the media, for example, you see these people instituting public shaming campaigns on social media against their employers. There was a recent one at the New York Times where a bunch of staffers sided with GLAAD, which is an LGBTQ plus advocacy organization, um, accusing the paper of transphobia. You have internal revolts where these people organize on Slack channels and then basically bully anyone who disagrees with them out of the company, like what happened with Barry Weiss. And then uh, they organize in a way to be able to send letters and, and have pressure campaigns against newsroom leadership, um, basically just bullying people into submission. And um, the boomers who are mostly in charge of these organizations or companies kind of go along with it because, one, they don't really understand social media. So they think 15 people on social media complaining about something is a really big deal and it's going to take down the company, which is kind of funny because now you have millions of people complaining about Bud Light and it's a sponsorship <laughs> with Dylan Mulvaney. And that's like a real social media campaign. And I think Bud Light realizes that. But um, typically these things are really small. It's usually just a vocal minority of people. And then the boomers also, um, they tend to be more liberal, the people who are in charge at least. And so I think they're kind of sympathetic to the woke progressives because they're supposed to be on the same side. And they don't realize that appeasement is the worst thing you can do because you just incentivize the mob-like behavior. Um, and they also are terrified of being called racist. Mm -hmm. For a liberal-leaning baby boomer, and actually for any baby boomer, they think being called racist is the worst thing in the world because yeah. it was. I mean, they grew up in the time period where civil rights was kind of a new concept. Um, some of them are old enough to remember separate drinking fountains. So when you live through that paradigm shift of American culture in terms of how we view race, they want nothing to do with any implication that they could have been one of those people who was pushing, you know, separate but equal. Yeah. Um, so they get called racist. They freak out and they try to do everything they possibly know how to defeat that accusation which is to do whatever the young people say. Whatever the mm -hmm. young people say so that I don't get called a racist or a bigot, I will do. But of course, all of that does is make sure that they continue lobbying the accusation whenever it's politically convenient because yeah. it works. One of the things that I'm interested to talk about a little more, you know, now that we're talking about like millennials and boomers and how they relate to each other is I'm I'm curious like where millennials are getting these ideas or these tactics from. I mean, presumably at places like GW, uh, I'm assuming a lot of the professors are like boomers, you know, is this, is this like a Georgetown, is, not GW or sorry. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it's happening there too. Um, uh, but, um, I'm curious to, you know, hear about like wh where are they learning this stuff? Are we getting it from boomers? I personally think that Gen X is the worst generation. Um, <laughs> are they getting it from them? Like, what do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, I do think that there is this academic class of people who, are both Gen X and Boomer probably, who use the university system as an opportunity to play test their most radical ideas. Um, there are things that haven't really been tried in practice and they have this platform, this perceived power. And so they feel like they can impart this toxicity onto younger impressionable people who are looking mm -hmm. for some kind of purpose in life. 
And then those kids can go out and implement the ideas and the academic gets to sit back and say, look, like I affected change, right? Yeah. <laughs> look at my little army. Exactly. Look at my little woke army. <laughs> right. It make, I think it makes them feel powerful. Um, I mean, that's sort of always been how ideas get inculcated in young professionals is through the universe, university system, at least in the past like 30 or 40 years. But the professors are getting more and more radical. And I found that the administration, at least at Georgetown, was not like that. They were kind of just reacting to what they viewed as this sort of existential threat to their power. Um, it was the professors in the uh, social studies um, and social sciences who were really, really hardcore. So like sociology, gender and women's studies, African-American studies. This was where radical ideas were dreamed up and then pushed onto the kids. Um, there was a term I learned recently from Politico Style Guide, actually, and it was it's a marginalized genders. I'd never heard this term before. It apparently refers to anyone who is not a cisgender man. So woman, trans, whatever, non-binary. Those are the marginalized genders. And I was wondering, where did this term come? So I started going back and, and trying to search on Google. And this was something that was created like 15, 20 years ago um, at, at in-university social science departments. And then it slowly seeped its way into the students and then they pushed it into the media and now it's apparently a common term being used in a style guide by a major dc news publication um so that really is where the idea is spread from i think um and unfortunately what is unique about the millennial generation that makes them so susceptible to radical ideas is that they're kind of a generation that's really blowing in the wind without any real sense of self or purpose um, they don't have religion in the way that their that older generations do. They don't really have community ties. Um, American life is just not the way it was when people were growing up in the 80s and even early 90s. Um, people are just kind of listless right now. Um, they're missing that's that one thing deep inside of them that anchors them. Mm -hmm. And so they are very, very susceptible to indoctrination, very liable to being radicalized in violent ways. There was a study that came out recently um, that I believe was published on the NIH website, and it talked about who was more susceptible to violent radicalization, and it was younger people and transgender people. <laughs> and like, why is that? Well, it's because they don't know who they are, mm -hmm. right? So these are, they, and, and it's going to start younger and younger and get worse, because now you have a generation of kids who are coming up through an elementary and middle school system that are pushing radical ideas of gender and politics. And those people are even more susceptible to brainwashing because they're young and they don't have critical thinking skills yet. Yeah, um, It's one thing if you have a base, you know, if your parents instilled good values in you and you get to college, you're going to lose some people. But for the most part, people are going to be pretty resistant to this crazy professor coming in and telling them that everything they know about the world is wrong. But if you're telling a fifth, uh, a five-year-old or even a fifth grader that um, their parents are lying to them, their parents are abusive, they're evil, they don't really have the wherewithal, the, the brain power to be able to fight against that. Um, so the problem is only getting worse because it's starting at a younger and younger age. Yeah. So I, I think that the best way to understand how these... Um, 
people actually operate is to to look at them in an ecosystem outside of college. And uh, luckily, um, or perhaps unluckily for everyone involved, uh, the media is the perfect playground for these people to to go about doing the things that they do. And there's a couple of stories that I think are, are particularly evocative, um, starting with uh, what happened to Dave Weigel at the Washington Post. Um, tell us that story and, and, and why it, it reflects kind of the worst of what um, these kind of movements are able to do when they're actually out in the wild. Certainly. I hope I can remember the joke properly. So Dave Weigel retweeted a joke from a comedian named Cam Harless, I think his name was. And the joke was, I think every girl is, uh, do you remember what it was? It's Something e- about bisexuality. Yeah, it's, it's every girl is bi, either sexual or um, Or polar. polar. That's what it was, yeah. Which, <laughs> Which is, is very funny. funny. Very yeah. funny. <laughs> yeah. um, and mostly true. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Dave Weigel didn't even say the joke himself. He just retweeted it because he thought it was funny. And this colleague of his, Felicia Sanmez, who we'll talk about more in depth in a moment, um, decided that she was offended by this and that it was sexist. So normally in a workplace, if you have a complaint about a colleague, you go to your superior or you file an HR complaint. Well, Felicia Sanmez decided that that was not sufficient for dealing with her concerns. So she blasted her colleague on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And 10 years ago, this would be unthinkable, right? The idea that you would take all of your dirty laundry from your workplace onto social media. That's the kind of thing that would get you fired pretty much immediately. Um, but in modern times it actually is a way to kind of effectively make the employer side with you because they're so terrified of negative pr and again they don't understand how social media works so this led to this long campaign of um infighting basically within the washington post from sort of the old guard which are the liberals who still kind of believe in journalistic principles and don't really like these public shaming campaigns and are afraid they'll be on the the receiving end of it who were defending dave weigel and saying that the that felicia's complaints were handled inappropriately and then there were sort of the young white women who were holding felicia up as this hero who was helping to affect change in the newsroom and make sure that women had a a welcome place to land and all of this, you know, progressive nonsense. Um, Dave Weigel, I believe, got suspended for a month. But what was fascinating about this particular case is that Felicia Sodomez actually ended up getting fired. (laughs) And this was a kind of a new uh, response from newsrooms to what's been happening internally, um, wherein they actually seem to be starting to discipline people who do this because I think they've realized how much damage they've done to themselves by just giving in all of the time. So Felicia Sanmez was fired for violating the social media policy. And Felicia Sanmez also has a really long history with the Washington Post. She, for years, has uh, had a lawsuit against the Washington Post for allegedly pulling her off of um, the sexual harassment and sexual abuse beat because she herself claims to have been the victim of sexual assault. And the reality is, if you go back and look at her tweets on the issue, she's very clearly an activist on it. And so the Washington Post wasn't saying you can't be impartial because you were assaulted. So you can't be impartial because you were clearly not impartial, (laughs) not impartial. I mean, she's made it very evident. Um, A judge has dismissed the case before. I think it she might have filed an appeal, but I don't think it's going to go anywhere. Um, so I think she felt empowered to launch this public shaming campaign of Dave Weigel because she kind of assumed the Post would never fire her because she had this lawsuit against them and it could be viewed as retaliation. 
So I, even I was kind of surprised when they did fire her. She now apparently works at an REI in downtown DC, like selling tents or something. <laughs> um, so that, I mean, that's what should happen to pretty much every one of these like loser progressive journalists, in my yeah. opinion, is that you have to go work in retail. But, um, <laughs> wow, I had missed that. Yeah, yeah that's so awesome. So that's awesome. Um, but I mean, again, this is part of a larger trend, I think, where media companies, they don't fully understand just how grave of a threat <clears throat> this uh, woke, toxic mob is to them. But they sort of instinctively understand it and reflexively understand it, because when The New York Times had that issue with Glad that I mentioned, they yeah, tell um, us about that story. What exactly happened? Right. So the New York Times had published a couple of op eds and stories basically looking at the transgender debate from a more not even conservative side, I think just rational side, which is to say J.K. Rowling's not a bigot or a transphobe because she wants to protect women's spaces. Conservatives who think that it's unfair to have biological men in women's sports are not transphobes. I mean, kind of just adding a little bit of a voice of reason into the debate, which is itself was shocking from the New York Times, but they did it. And then some staffers decided to coordinate with GLAD to send a letter. There was one from staff, one from GLAD and New York Times contributors to New York Times leadership claiming that the paper was giving a platform to transphobia and uh, was actively harming transgender people. Well, the New York Times responded to this by actually releasing a statement in which they said they were no longer going to tolerate reporters and staff members siding with activist groups on any side of the political aisle. And the follow-up reporting was that they were supposedly starting to discipline the people who had signed on to this letter, although I haven't seen any evidence of that. Mm -hmm. But I mean, compare that to what happened at the New York Times just a couple of years ago when they published an op-ed from Tom Cotton saying that the National Guard should be sent in to quell the riots in the summer of 2020. What happened at the paper then was that the editors who had even had this op-ed go through their email inbox were forced out of the paper if you go to the Tom Cotton op-ed on the New York Times website, I'm pretty sure there's still an editor's note at the top of it saying that it should have never been published. And the way that the staffers were able to get all of this done was, again, a social media shaming campaign where they created this little hashtag and all of the staff members used the hashtag in their tweets and then copy and pasted this line saying that publishing this op-ed put black New York Times staffers' lives in danger. And that's sort of the common refrain, isn't it, from the woke left, that if you disagree with them in any way, shape or form, you're actually harming them. Mm -hmm. And not just because of what your policies might do, but your language mm -hmm. itself is violence. Mm -hmm. And so that's why they are so keen on using violence to respond, because they believe that they're acting in self-defense. It's a really warped worldview. But I mean, the difference in The New York Times, you have staffers being fired for publishing a Tom Cotton op-ed to now a few sign on to this letter with GLAD and the New York Times is actually pushing back. So there's a bit of a sea change happening yeah. right now. Yeah, someone once had this great line. I forget who it was. It was probably in a non because it was actually clever. It was like <laughs> it was right wing free speech is violence and left wing violence is free speech. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's basically the argument. It's so true. I mean, culture. look at what happened at uh, at Stanford right. with Judge Duncan. Um, you had a diversity dean go up and ask if the juice was worth the squeeze. <laughs> and the assertion in follow-up um, opinion pieces from her, and there was a piece in the New York Times this weekend. Uh, my friend Tim Rosenberger is the president of the Federalist Society there, and they quoted him. But they also quoted some of the liberal protesters. And they, they, they've always said this. The left on campus has always said this, which is 
if we interrupt a speaker, it's because we deserve our free speech, too. And it's like, okay, (laughs) you're preventing someone else from giving a talk that is scheduled. There's probably a QA and a session at the end during which you can ask your questions. The whole idea that the university is trampling on your free speech because they don't want you to interrupt someone else is like so cuckoo brains crazy. I mean, I don't under I, I don't know if they're trolling or if they truly believe this stuff. Um, but based on the fact that most of them are in therapy, I would say they probably truly believe it because it takes yeah. a very psychotic person to think that someone's speech is actively hurting you. Yeah. Is there a distinction to be made between how the woke people inside some of these mainstream publications treat sort of centrist libs at the company versus how they treat, say, the token right-wing columnist at their company? Because it, it seems like to me, or maybe he's just like fully kept at this point, like a George Will at the Washington Post or a Ross Douthat at the New York Times don't actually come under ire from their own publication staff as often as like the centrist libs at these publications do. Can you unpack what that distinction might actually look like? Well, one of the distinctions is that the centrist libs tend to be reporters for the most part, whereas the sort of token Republican or conservative tends to be an opinion columnist. Mm -hmm. And those divisions are still like functionally separate. Um, The reason that the people who published the Tom Cotton op-ed took so much flack is because although they're opinion editors, they're still editors, right? Mm -hmm. So the change that's happening in newsrooms is not we should just publish left-wing opinions all the time. They actually want to reshape what journalism is. Mm -hmm. Um, They want to reshape what's happening on the news side to be more progressive. So they're changing the language that's in style guides. They are um, changing the, the concept of searching for the truth or trying to be objective or, or unbiased in favor of fighting on behalf of marginalized voices and speaking truth to power. Um, so anyone who doesn't go along with that shift is going to be thrown under the bus. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the people at the papers who are fighting back are centrist slips. Um, the Republicans and conservatives, again, are on the opinion side, so they don't really have an active role in what the ethics of the paper are. Mm-hmm. They're just kind of writing their sort of anodyne um, right-wing sort of takes. And also, a lot of these people have been there for a really long time, so they're sort of entrenched. Um, there was a major backlash when Brett Stevens got hired at the New York Times. If you remember, he was accused of being a climate denier. Mm-hmm. And Brett Stevens, of course, is one of the most like non-conservative conservatives, um, as most of these people who write for the major papers are. And no one complains about him anymore because now he just gives lip service to leftist ideas in the name of fighting the bad Republicans. C.C. David French. Right. Um, (laughs) The conservative case for being a total cuck. Yeah. So you mentioned how the ethics of journalism itself are are under attack now. And there's a fascinating story to be told about um, what's gone on at Politico specifically with their style guide. Um, You go into it in your book a little bit. Walk us through what exactly is happening there and what it means for every single word that you read at any major publication. Politico is one of the greatest examples of the woke takeover of the mainstream media. I know the New York Times and the Washington Post get a lot of attention, and we've, of course, been talking about them a lot here. But I think there's just such a perfect through line between woke staffers at Politico sort of finding each other and realizing that they were all there to using what little power they had to exert a ton of influence on the journalistic process. So a couple of years ago, when Politico was changing over the staff on its Playbook newsletter, which used to be sort of the must read for everyone in D.C., it's 
pretty much trash now. Um, they decided in the interim of bringing on these new staff members that they were going to have a bunch of guest authors. One of the guest authors was Ben Shapiro, and this was unacceptable to the woke young staffers in the Politico newsroom, a lot of whom were not even reporters or editors, had no power whatsoever. Some of them were like graphic designers. I mean, you'll often find it's the most low on the totem pole people who are trying to make themselves indispensable by becoming the experts on on DEI or racial equity or whatever um, the buzzword of the day is. So they to short circuit to power. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and you can't you can't fire them because mm-hmm. then you're a racist. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of perfect for them. It's a way of specializing your career. So they start complaining about Ben Shapiro. They send a letter to the editor to the editor's credit at Politico. He did not apologize for having Ben Shapiro. He basically told them to pound sand, although he was a little too nice about it, in my opinion. Um, But uh, according to several former Politico staffers that I spoke to who were there at the time, this was basically the moment that all of these young woke staffers realized how many of them there actually were. And they were dedicated moving forward to basically causing a ruckus whenever it was convenient for them. They started a union as well so that they would be further protected from retaliation if they uh, continued with their mob tactics. So um, shortly after the Ben Shapiro incident, Gabby Orr, who now writes for CNN, um, had written a, a really great long form piece about the Republican efforts ahead of the midterm elections to protect women's sports from biological men. And she quoted two conservatives in it. She quoted Stephen Miller, the former um, Trump advisor, as well as Terry Schilling, who you've had on the podcast, um, American Principles Project founder and president. Um, and they said pretty, you know, normal things about biological men competing in women's sports. It's unfair. It's weird. It's creepy. Blah, blah, blah. She also quoted Kate Oakley, who is a uh, senior official at, I believe, the Human Rights Campaign. So obviously very progressive on the issue. Um, So she covered both sides. And the piece I thought was very fair. I mean, I guess I'm biased um, from the left's perspective. But after this piece was published, Gabby was called into a meeting with Robin Turner, who was the director of diversity initiatives at Politico, a job title that should never exist, (laughs) and several of her colleagues, because her colleagues had complained that she had published a transphobic article. And throughout the ensuing struggle session, I would call it, she was probed about the fact that she used to work at the Washington Examiner, which is a center-right outlet. So the implication was that she couldn't possibly approach this issue fairly or in the correct way because she must have been a secret closeted conservative. Um, They told her that when she was quoting Stephen Miller and Terry Schilling, that she should have added context to inform readers that their comments were transphobic. She was supposed to actually quote a transgender individual, simply quoting Kate Oakley from the Human Rights Campaign was actually not enough. And it was suggested to her at the conclusion of the meeting from Robin Turner that she should have sensitivity readers for any future articles she writes about transgender issues. Now, following that, it seemed like the Politico leadership decided that more needed to be done in order to convince the colleagues who complained that they were not going to let this happen again. So they actually brought in a group of transgender activists from various left-wing journalistic associations and activist organizations to come in and lecture reporters on how they were allowed to write about transgender issues. 
And this is unheard of in a newsroom to have, you know, three members of a uh, an issue lobby explain to a group of reporters how they're allowed to write about something. It'd, it'd be like having hedge fund managers come into lecture like Financial Times reporters. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Or or having, you know, Exxon come in and tell people how they're allowed to write about oil spills. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of the analogy. Um, so they come in and they tell people that terms like mother can be offensive, mm. that they need to use only non-gendered language in birthing their reporting. Person. <laughs> yes, birthing person, pregnant people, person who menstruates. That's yeah. one of my favorites. And um, also that if you report on transgender issues from the conservative side, if you represent their voice, then you are actually violating journalistic ethics because you can't. If you if you give a voice to transphobia and you are harming people, then you are no longer fighting on behalf of the marginalized. And that's a violation of journalistic ethics. I wonder I don't know if you've talked about this anywhere else at all, but this seems to me in my mind to be happening kind of at the same time because Politico is owned by like a European company. uh, Yeah. How, How much do you think that has to do with like. I know they got a bunch of like European bureaucrats in Brussels, you know, managing all this stuff. How much do you think that kind of shift in ownership changed the values of the company as a whole? I'm not sure that it did. I don't know that they're micromanaging it quite that much because I remember when they were first purchased by Axel Springer, um, they kind of made it sound like Politico was going to be more of a global paper and was going to focus more on like global politics, I guess, and international stories. And I don't see how doubling down on like the progressive view of transgenderism really fits in with that. I think this was something that was kind of already happening and they just were kind of hands off on the whole issue and were like, mm-hmm. let the crazy US people do what they want. Because I mean, in Europe, right, The there's no debate over uh, like youth going through gender transitions they've already banned it in Mm -hmm. a lot of countries so i i'm sure they're kind of looking on like all these crazy americans um so they have this activist or a group of activists come in and and lecture reporters and then in january of 2022 so a little over a year ago they released a new style guide and the changes to this style guide are vast and insane um they basically did what the trans activists told them to do. They got rid of gendered language. They said that reporters should use terms like pregnant people, people who menstruate. Um, They should not use pregnant women. They um, should not use terms like biological man or biological sex because that is transphobic. You're not allowed to use terms like so-and-so identifies as female because identifies as suggests that they are not actually the gender that they claim to be. You're not allowed to say so-and-so was assigned at birth a certain gender because that would imply that what they were born as is more important than what they identify. I have a, You see, you can't even you get twisted up to a word puzzle. You can't even you can't, talk about it. You can't yeah. even talk about the issue. It's a way of just silencing debate on it entirely and making sure that you can't ever even approach covering the side that's skeptical of transgender ideology. Um, and this is common in a lot of newsrooms that have made these changes. The Washington Post has started using pregnant people, for example. And I mean, it's really hard to overstate how how big of a shift this is because language uh, leads directly to thought, right? 
So if you're constantly reading news articles that say a biological man just is a woman and that people who are not women can get pregnant, eventually that starts becoming normalized in the way people think about issues. So this is a very insidious way of getting people to accept the progressive orthodoxy as the norm in society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the worst part is is that as soon as it's been around for a year or two, suddenly it's the conservative position to keep it. Right, right. <laughs> it's like, oh, well, this is a storied institutional position of the Politico <laughs> uh, newsroom. Um, yeah, I mean, how many conservative outlets use AP style? Yeah. yeah. I mean, AP style is where a lot of this this stuff became like acceptable to journalistic outlets. Yeah. What is happening there? I mean, so I I believe it was AP who originally decided that like black would be capitalized, Mm -hmm. but white would. I mean, have conservative outlets made a conscious decision not to adopt certain elements of AP style now? Is that bifurcation starting to happen? It is. I mean, at The Spectator, as far as I know, we don't capitalize black. Mm-hmm. We certainly don't use pregnant people. Mm-hmm. Um, I I found that most conservative outlets actually don't even have really hard and fast rules on how to write about these issues, mm-hmm. like specifically transgenderism and race, which I think they should because it leads to a lot of confusion. So at Fox, for example, you'll often see that they use the preferred pronouns of a transgender person. Really? They yeah. do, yeah, I've seen a lot of people. Well, and that so out. that's like a Fox Corp thing because actually I wrote about this recently. The Wall Street Journal hired Robin Turner, who was that diversity editor at Politico that lectured Gabby Orr about her article. And they, so WSJ brought her on to um, spread DEI throughout their global newsrooms. So you love to see it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so an ostensibly right wing outlet is is doing all of this. Um, and the other conservative outlets, again, I think they need to figure out how they're going to operate in this space now, because otherwise they're quickly going to find themselves doing what Fox Corp is doing, which is just adopting what is the most convenient, least controversial thing. Um, I know in my writing, like I refuse to use the preferred pronouns of whatever transgender person I'm writing about. I use the pronouns that reflect their biology. Uh, but that's not the case everywhere. And sometimes, like some conservative outlets I've noticed will use they, them, which mm-hmm. is part of accepting that whole ideology. Mm-hmm. And then some of them will only use like the person's name, which I think is a better route. Yeah. Um, because at least it doesn't. Um, suppose that they them is like a real thing (laughs) yeah it's a major opportunity sitting around for any conservative institution with any history behind it to basically say we're we're going to be we're we're going to generate a style guide that's actually consistent that the rest of conservative press can actually adopt well that would require cojones yeah and require doing real work yeah Yeah, not being lazy yeah (laughs) Uh, but i mean it's a good idea um another word that's commonly uh kicked around is like undocumented versus illegal alien mm-hmm. versus illegal migrant versus undocumented migrant. I mean, there's all no, these different terms now. Illegal, right. You know? So, I mean, <laughs> just t- adopt the legal term that's used by DHS and move on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's so interesting. One of the institutions that uh, I would argue is is a perfect example of the prestige of kind of the uh, or the uh, an intersection of prestige and this woke revolution and institutional Washington uh, is how the White House press corps itself works, which you've uh, been a part of for a couple of years now. 
One, can you just explain how being a White House correspondent actually works? Who's in charge over there? How do you get in that room? Could I go and get a seat in the White House press room if I wanted to? How does that all work? Right. It's a good question. A lot of people don't understand it um, because it is, I mean, it's not something that people really talk about openly um, because I think the sort of unspoken rule is that if you want to be in on the game, then you don't criticize Hmm. any of the institutions. I, for whatever reason, have been very critical of the White House Correspondents Association for years and still am a card carrying member. So <laughs> hopefully they won't kick you out for this interview. Well, <laughs> it'd be if this were what did it, I'd be very surprised. But um, so basically how I became a White House correspondent credentialed is that um, when I was working for the Daily Caller, I had a congressional press pass. So I was um, credentialed through like the Senate press gallery, for example. And typically and that is a government institution. That is the, the United States Senate runs. Correct. That. Okay. Um, that's not like a group of elected reporters who yeah. decide that's a government institution. And so that kind of shows that your outlet has passed some kind of background check and screening process to prove that they're legitimate and that they actually cover politics and that the reporters are not, you know, like foreign uh, spies or whatever. Um, So I had that. And then you apply for the White House hard pass, although you don't necessarily need a hard pass to get in the White House. It just means that you can go every day and swipe in and you don't have to fill out like a special form requesting access. So the hard pass is done through the Secret Service. Mm -hmm. Um, Basically, how that works, from my understanding, is that whatever administration is in power gives you the preliminary yes or no and then passes you along to the Secret Service. Um, and then you can get the hard pass. So you kind of have to already be with a pre-credentialed outlet through Congress in order to get to the White House hard pass. The White House Correspondents <laughs> Association is... So, so do independent journalists not really have a way to break into the system? Not like, really. Okay. It's Yeah, I mean, there's a pretty large fence you have to scale in order to even get in. Mm-hmm. Again... Does it um, ever happen? I'm sure it does, um, probably if you're like an ally of the administration. Mm -hmm. Um, But that being said, you can go on a less permanent basis. They have what's called a waves form that you can fill out. And again, if you have some other credential through the government, you can get daily or weekly access. Um, A lot of people do it that way. But it's definitely easier to have a hard pass um, because then you're not beholden to sending in these requests all the time and getting like special approval. Um, But the WHDA is a separate thing. This is not government run at all. This is a group of reporters who are elected to a bureaucratic organization who then decide basically how access works once you're on the White House campus. So in the briefing room, the seating arrangement that you see is not done by the administration. It's done by the White House Correspondents Association. Mm -hmm. And every few years, they go back and they revisit the seating chart and nothing changes a whole, whole lot. Maybe in the back row, they'll throw in a couple of conservatives so that will shut up and go along with the system. Um, But how did the White House Correspondents Association come about to begin with? I think it was started in the 70s. And I mean, it was created to address this challenge. I'm basically the idea was that they would be independent of politics um, in determining who gets access to events because, I mean, there is inherently a problem if a political administration with political communication staffers was deciding who was allowed to be in press briefings, right? But the problem is, is the WHCA, because it's 
old and because um, most of the people who cover the White House are from outlets that have legacy, have tons of money because it's expensive to cover the White House. I mean, if you go on a trip with the president, for example, it's like $3,000 right there just to fly on Air Force One with him. Um, So you have, you know, CNN, New York Times, Fox News, Washington Post, Associated Press, McClatchy, Reuters, all of these legacy institutions who are covering the White House on a regular basis for any number of years, the past few decades. Um, So those are the people that tend to get elected to higher positions in the WHCA, and they tend to reward their friends. So the first row in the in the briefing room is who? CNN, Fox News, NBC News, MSNBC, um, basically all the TV outlets. The second row, you'll have like the wire services and some of the other mainstream legacy outlets. Third row, you tend to get maybe like some foreign outlets, but for the most part, it's still these mainstream outlets. It's not until you get into the last two rows that you'll see anything right of center that's not Wall Street Journal or Fox or Fox Biz. And everybody else who doesn't get a permanent seat, I think right now there's only five non-corporate conservative outlets who have a permanent seat in the briefing room. And it's like Daily Caller, Washington Examiner. I can't remember if I include Real Clear Politics in that count, but it's not very many. Everybody else has to stand in the aisles. If you stand in the aisle, you're probably not going to get a question from the press secretary. And even if you're sitting in the back in a permanent seat, you're probably not going to get a question. Because How how does that work? Like, is it literally just whatever's an eye shot of the White House press secretary and the kinds of things that tend to be an eye shot are the kinds of outlets they're going to give those questions to anyway. I mean, what, what, are, what are the dynamics of asking questions in the White yeah, House press briefing? It's a combination. So it's definitely about where their eyes are oriented. Um, so being in the front certainly helps. I mean, as it would with any type of press conference. Um, that being said, the press secretary does also typically know who the reporters are because when a new administration comes in, the reporters will make an effort to set up a meeting with the press secretary. Of course, when you have a liberal administration or a democratic administration, they're going to be more likely to call on the corporate outlets anyway mm-hmm. because they hate independent and conservative media um, because it's a threat to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's all kinds of reasons why Karine Jean-Pierre wouldn't call on me. Mm-hmm. Um, but even in the Trump administration, I mean, the only time that I would get a question from the aisle or if I was lucky enough to get a seat was if I kind of gave the administration a heads up that I was going to be there and whoever was at the podium knew who I was and was going to call on me because they thought I was going to ask something good or interesting. But it's really a, a whole game involved in the press briefings. And then the WHDA also controls how access works for departures and arrivals of the president. So if Biden is leaving and going to board Marine One to go somewhere, for example, there's a press scrum that's usually set up there that he goes to talk to. Well, the order that people are allowed to go to the scrum in is also determined by the WHCA and there's this line system. So how it works is the cameras and photographers and wire services get to go first, then the pool reporters of the day, and then the other outlets, but the other outlets, that system's game too, because you're only allowed to line up a certain um, time before you go out. I think it's 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. So if you are someone who has younger staffers with you, you can send someone out to hold your place in line. Mm -hmm. You can put a stool there or a piece of equipment. Um, And uh, if you're someone like me, you need those 30 minutes to work because you're the only person covering the White House. I don't have a team of five people with me Mm -hmm. where I can send an intern to go waste their time dilly-dallying in the line. 
Then when you actually go out, all of the cameras are set up. So if you're from an outlet that is a TV outlet, you already have your space saved at the front of the rope because your cameraman's there. So all those people get to line up at the front of the line. Everybody else is in the back, like trying to get over people's heads to ask questions. And if you're 5'4", like I am, that's kind of difficult. <laughs> so what I used to do is I would either duck under the tall people's elbows and like worm my way to the front or um, there are ladders out there for the photographers and I would climb up like the first two rungs of the ladder behind the photographer so that <laughs> wow. I was tall and I'd like lean over. <laughs> well, and I would assume that those, the people who have their like cameras out and stuff, it's rarely, they're rarely picking like Newsmax or like a, you know, a more, a more conservative outlet. What, what are some other examples of, uh, you know, aside from the seating chart of, uh, the WHCA's bias against conservatives and conservative media. One really great example is what happened to One America News during the COVID pandemic. Mm. Um, the Biden administration really locked down press ac- access during that, and I don't know why there haven't. Well, I do know why there haven't been more complaints about it, but um, they were really, really shameless. So not only is there still actually a vaccine mandate, um, like if you don't have a vaccine. Uh, card that's submitted to the White House communications team, you have to go get a test before you're allowed to get in. And until very recently, the test costs like $150. So again, like a bootstrapped independent outlet is not going to really have the opportunity to go to the White House every day during COVID. Mm -hmm. And they also limited the number of seats that were in the briefing room. And the only people who kept their permanent seats were, again, the corporate legacy outlets. Everybody else had to rotate through one seat. And I was in that uh, rotation I got to go once in the span of a year. Wow. And the one time I was in there, it was after like a big Hunter Biden story dropped. Nobody asked about it. I was sitting in the back. She cut off questions. Karine Jean-Pierre cut off questions like two seats before me. Um, so that w- that whole experience was absolutely ridiculous. It's a little bit better now. They actually let people go into the briefing room. Um, but under the Trump administration, um, when the WHDA had helped implement all of these rules, Someone from the Trump communications team, I don't know who, had apparently personally invited Chanel Rion to come and ask questions. And you guys probably remember she would stand in the back and she would bring her own seat. And the press corps was livid because she had basically found a workaround to their whole little system of keeping people like her out. Um, So they complained that she was violating the social distancing protocols. Then they complained that she was violating the WHCA mandates and she's a member, so she has to listen to what they say. And um, she just kept showing up to her credit. But after um, that entire situation happened, the WHCA voted to remove One America News as a member in good standing. And to this day, OAN struggles to get White House access because of what the WHCA did. So it was a direct retaliation for her saying, I'm not going to play by your silly little rules just to be able to exercise my First Amendment right as a journalist to ask a question of the White House. Like, this is crazy. Yeah, that's wild. One other piece of this puzzle that is is sacred to Washington. Uh, tell us about the, the White House correspondence ball. Like, what's it actually oh, called? Oh, the dinner. The dinner. <laughs> like this, I mean, it, it's, it's, I find it fascinating because there's an argument to be made that it got President Trump elected because of that, you know, joker origin story moment where barack obama is making fun of him from stage and right. he's like sitting in the audience just like smiling and like <laughs> he runs for president a few years later but what what's the social dynamics around that i mean what 
do they call it like nerd prom or nerd something prom. stupid yeah. like that? <laughs> and they have all these after parties that are hosted by like Vanity Fair and NBC News. So I have never been to one. Um, they're kind of expensive. It's, I think, $300 per ticket, maybe $5,000 for a table. And I've never worked for an outlet that's willing to shell out money to go to nerd prom, which is totally fair. <laughs> and I don't know that I would have much fun at it anyway. But um, ostensibly, the White House Correspondence Center is a scholarship fundraising event. Mm. And the scholarships <laughs> are for future journalists or whatever, young, like, college-age journalists. And really what it is, it's, it's an opportunity for the reporters to schmooze with government officials and celebrities and feel like they're just as important and also to build those sort of slimy insider DC relationships, mm -hmm. especially the after parties. I think the after parties are an even bigger part of that. But I mean, how it works is basically you buy a table and then you invite a couple of people you really want your outlet to get to know. And they come and they sit at the dinner with you and then you take them out boozing at the after parties. And it's all about like the greasing of the palms. Yeah. And if you are a liberal, liberal reporter getting to attend the dinner during a Republican administration, you know that you're going to get a comedian who's going to um, give you the opportunity to let out all of your anger and frustration with the administration because you don't like whoever is in power. That's why the Michelle Wolf thing, like all of those journalists secretly loved it. The only reason that they... Um, pretended they didn't was because there was major backlash to her comments. Um, which, by the way, her joke about Kelly and Conway getting stuck under a tree was much worse than the Sarah Sanders eyeshadow thing. But everyone kind of missed that, and I kind of wonder like what that means about um, whether or not people actually like Kellyanne. I don't know. I've never met. I think I've met her once, but you would think people would be more mad about a comedian joking about a tree falling on someone than makeup. But anyway, um. Now they're just boring because the comedians can't really say anything actually funny or true about the administration. Yeah, they should invite Tucker to, to come roasting. do it one yeah. <laughs> Right. That so, I mean, it's kind of silly, but I mean, it's basically just an opportunity, again, for reporters to kind of feel like they're celebrities and they can rub elbows with people mm -hmm. that they want to develop as sources. And there's a pretty gross relationship in general between reporters and the government. I mean, the New York Times is basically a stenographer for the intelligence community at this point. Everybody knows that. Um, and a lot of these outlets get talking points from the DNC or the White House on a daily basis and then go on TV and say them. And then they are rewarded with more access. It's like a circular. Yeah relationship to to pronounce it like tucker does is a uh, kareen jean-pierre mm -hmm. as stupid as she actually seems um i've only been to one press briefing or two with her i was at one two weeks ago um and john kirby was there too and it was right after the nashville shooting mm -hmm. with the transgender suspect and it was pretty poor it was very poor um she was very unimpressive she went the only time that she even sounded like she knew what she was talking about to an extent was when she was complaining about guns. And that was just because she got really worked up about it. Um, 
But I mean, from what I can tell, no, she's not good at her job. I don't have any like inside info to give you on her. I guess I'm saying. Yeah. Was was this the same press briefing that she gave where she said something to the effect of like, you know, we stand with the transgender yes. community? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And was I was terrible. in the aisle and I had such good questions ready and I knew I wasn't going to gonna get called on, but I was secretly hoping. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it seems like there is absolutely no hope for um, <laughs> the mainstream media. Uh, Amber, where can people keep up with everything that you're writing? Where can they buy the book? And, and how can they follow your chronicling of the decline of our culture and society? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So the book is called The Snowflakes Revolt, How Woke Millennials Hijacked American Media. And that is available now at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Bookshop. I'm pretty anti-Amazon, so I always tell people Barnes & Noble or Bookshop, preferably Bookshop. Um, but yeah, you can buy that now. There's an ebook available, I believe. And people can also follow my work at thespectator.com or just follow me on Twitter at Amber underscore Athey. Well, thank you for everything that you do. And thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that. And we always are appreciative that you guys continue to tune in every single week to listen to the show. Be sure to go to AmericanMoment.org. There you can find the backlog of the show and everything else we have cooking. As of right now, we still have an application live for Foundations of American Statecraft, Conflict, Foreign Policy, and Diplomacy. If you want to go up against the cartel of uh, disgusting monsters that Georgetown School of Foreign Service is putting out, come do Foundations of American Statecraft to credential yourself uh, in opposition to those people. Um, thank you guys as always for listening. We hope you rate and review the podcast five stars. If you write an interesting question or a comment in your five-star review, we'll be sure to read it out on the show. I think we're at like 148 reviews. Let's get it up to 150 in the next couple of days. That'd be really cool. And again, we're always grateful that you guys continue to listen, except for the fake news journalists. We'll see you guys next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.